Yes, we do have Sunday school for youth today, even though Tyler's uh, not here. Uh, Becca and Jerry are going to be leading that class, so uh, that'll be good. All right, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I want to ask you to please stand with me. Acts 6, 1 through 7. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus. Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who had prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we know that you are the giver of life. And Lord, therefore, you are the giver of growth. And Lord, you tell us in your word that you supply the supernatural power for individuals to grow in their faith and for churches to grow in their faith and to grow in numbers as well. Lord, we pray that we would understand today one of the most important things that we can understand about a growing church and how we can avoid um, uh, the things that hinder us. Lord, help us to become faithful to you. Help us to have this heart where we always want to grow individually closer to the Lord and together as a church that we want to move forward uh, to spread your kingdom, to glorify your name. God, we pray and we ask all these things in that precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Consider for just a moment all the odds that were against the early church. Their leader, Jesus, had been slain, had been crucified by the Roman and Jewish authorities. There was a, a word of his resurrection sent out, but soon those same authorities started a, a public a campaign to slander and to discredit that account of his resurrection. The earliest apostles, leaders in the church, were poor and uneducated men and women, lacking any weight or influence in society. Mocking started early, and therefore, even on the day of Pentecost, when the church began, uh, they were made fun of. People said, Oh, you're drunk. And they, their reply was, no, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Soon it went beyond just teasing or mocking or ridiculing to actual uh, persecution from the government. That began with 
uh, being held and interrogated and, and strictly warned. And soon that moved on into more uh, to threats, to floggings, to punishment, even threats of death. The early church also faced other obstacles besides poverty and persecution, even internal struggles such as dishonest believers like Ananias and Sapphira. And yet through all those, and we could really talk about more, those were really the highlights of what the early church was facing and what they had going against them. The first time that you really see a hint of there's something big enough, bad enough, wrong enough that might hinder the church, it might possibly stop the growth and the momentum of the church, is here in Acts chapter 6. What is this great, momentous opposition, this foe, this thing that could cause the early church to slow down and lose focus? Very simply put, discontent. Discontent and disunity. When you say, hear that word, discontent, it seems like a small word compared to persecution, threats of death, poverty, all of these other things going on. And yet that one little thing, that disunity, that discontent, that, this complaining and murmuring and this fracturing of the church that seemed like it was about to happen, that thing could have blown it all apart, could have messed it all up and caused a vast problems. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Uh, the apostles, the early church, learned how to deal with this discontent and how to, how to stop that, how to stop the church from going its separate ways and how to move forward. As we think about in our own lives, the places we work, in our families at home, and especially in the church, discontent, disunity, can be a real barrier toward growth. And we can learn from the, the apostles. What they did then gives us hints about what we can do now, how we can stay united. How do we deal with discontent? The first thing we do is we listen and take the problem seriously. It's so, it's so easy to ignore problems, right? It's so easy to just pretend they don't exist and, and, and just, you know, hope they go away. Uh, we can procrastinate. We can say, yeah, that's an issue. Uh, we'll get to it one day, somewhere down the road. We can say, well, you know what? Overall, this really is a problem, but overall things are going really well, so why do I need to worry about this, this issue? Uh, they could have been defensive. You ever been around people like that that you can never raise an issue with, no matter how legitimate, and no matter how much you've maybe complimented them and agreed with them on everything else, but you bring up this one thing and you say, hey, you know, listen, we, we really need to deal with this. Oh, boy, they just they buck up. I mean, they, they just get so swollen up and so upset and so defensive. And, you know, the apostles could have done that. I mean, they could have said, how dare these people be discontent? Haven't they seen the miracles? Haven't they seen all the, the churches growing? How dare they criticize and say that there's a problem here? But they didn't do that. They could have discounted the discontent just because of who it was. So, uh, yeah. yeah, we see where that's coming from. That's those Hellenistic Jews, and we'll talk in a minute about who they were and what that was all about. So they could have done all these things and a lot of other things, but, but they didn't. 
Instead, the apostles, as they hear a report that something serious is going on, and they know it's serious, they acknowledge the problem. They listened to the problem. They took it seriously. They understood the truth that perception is often reality for people. And what I mean by that is we act on what we perceive. If we may or may not know the truth, but whatever we think the truth is, if we think that there's a problem, we're going to act based on our perception of what we think is going on. So these apostles, they put major time and energy in prayer into dealing with this issue. We listen and we take problems seriously. Secondly, we focus on solutions. If we're going to deal with issues, we've got to focus on solutions. Now, what was the problem? Because we're reading this uh, from uh, 2,000 years time distance and a huge cultural distance halfway around the world. What in the world was going on? I mean, it just a casual glance reading of this doesn't make sense. But the issue is there was a cultural thing going on in this early church. Now, at this point, it was all Jews. Every single one of them were Jews. And we say, well, how can this be an issue? How, can this, how could they have this cultural problem? Well, it, it reminded me of the issue a couple weeks ago. I was talking to a, a, a guy down in South Florida, and there's a very successful church going down there in Miami. And they have two services. They have an English-speaking service, and they have a Spanish-speaking service. Now, the interesting thing about this church, it's not a church of Anglos and Hispanics. The entire church is Hispanic. Everybody in that church, they're, they're all Hispanic. But some of them are more comfortable speaking English because they've been over here a long time, and they, just, they enjoy an English-speaking church. And others of them enjoy a Spanish-speaking church. And so they've got kind of evolved into, well, we have this worship service and this worship service. And it reminded me as well of when I was growing up on the coast, uh, we had the Vietnamese there who had come over in the 70s. And, and all the ones who are my age, they grew up speaking English. They talked just like everybody else. Uh, but their parents, you know, they couldn't really understand much English. They, they carried with them a lot of the, the old world ways of doing things from back where they were. And I remember there was a cultural kind of divide there, even though they were the same ethnicity, the same type of people group. Well, that's what was going on here in the early church. They were all Jews. But some of them were known as Hellenistic Jews, and, and that meant they were part of the, the Greek culture. Just like we, we might say someone coming to this uh, a second-generation immigrant would be thoroughly, thoroughly Americanized, maybe, in this country. These folks, the, the Hellenist or the Greek-speaking, they were used to the secular world around them. They spoke Greek. That was the, the language of, of everyday life. And these other Jews, they were more with the old Jewish traditions. And they spoke Aramaic, which is very close to Hebrew. And, and they were more traditional, and most of them grew up in Jerusalem or the areas around there. And these others, man, they'd been off all around the world. Some of them, the research I did on this said Jerusalem was kind of like the Florida for Jews in that day. I mean, they'd come back there to retire. They might live in Egypt or Assyria or all over, but they kind of moved back to Jerusalem. Ah, that's where I want to retire in the Holy Land. 
Well, they had a very different way of thinking about life, even though they were true Jews and they, they bought into the Jewish faith, but they had lived in Egypt or Assyria or wherever, and they came back and you have those folks and you have the, I grew up in Judea and I've been here all my life. And these two different groups in the church, they didn't quite see life quite the same, even though they had the Jewish background and further, they had all become, these people had become Christians. And yet they looked at things differently. And the issue specifically where this really first manifested or showed up was in the food distribution they had going on, where widows and these Jewish Christians took this very seriously, right? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament apostles commanded you got to look after widows and orphans. And there was a food distribution among the church, and, and they were taking care of folks. And some of them said, wait a minute. Our widows aren't getting taken care of. Now, now you talk about a hot-button issue. <laughs> Someone all of a sudden thinks that uh, granny's not getting taken care of, or you know, somehow uh, our, our senior adult ladies are not being fed. Tension, emotion could get really high all of a sudden. So that was the problem, that there was at least a perception the Bible doesn't ever go into whether, whether it really wasn't working out or not, but the perception was that this group of widows wasn't getting fed, and this group of widows, the ones who had all, always lived in Jerusalem or Judea in that area, they were getting taken care of just fine. And this had the power. This could have split the church. I mean, think about it in our experience in modern day church life. Churches split over carpet color. But you talk about these widows not being fed. This was a potentially huge issue. So what did the apostles do about it? Well, first we saw that they listened and took the problem seriously. Secondly, they focused on solutions. I, I, I love how they went about this, at least as far as when they presented it. You know, they could have done this big public trial and investigation. We're going to find out whose fault it is. People in life and even in the church, we always want to find out whose fault. Who do we blame? Who do we point the fingers at and say, it's your fault that the widows weren't being fed. You're the bad guy. Shame on you. We'll punish you. And then the problem will be solved. No, absolutely not. Because the problem was bigger than one person. The, the problem was kind of just the way that, they, that these groups interacted and publicly shaming or embarrassing somebody wasn't going to fix the problem, although it might have made somebody feel better if they were out for blood and they wanted to see someone castigated. But the genius of the apostles planned, and I think it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's really apparent when you see all the things that could have gone wrong, how badly this could have been. They realized that for us to... let. Let's go ahead and talk about all the problems and all the people to blame and do this big old thing. They realized that could have just blown up even more and made it worse. And they said, let's just focus instead of just dragging on and escalating and getting worse. Let's just focus on a solution. Let's just make sure that this won't happen again and everybody will know that it won't happen again. And everybody will be assured that in the body of Christ, in the church, there is unity not just among people who grew up in the same neighborhood and all look and smell and act and dress the same way, but even among people from different cultures, we're going to be 
uh, together in the body of Christ. And so they came up with a plan to deal with the problem. You and I, when we face problems, we have to look for solutions. That's leadership. We have to look for how do we make this better, not how do we talk about it and say we did something just because we talked a bunch about it, but how do we actually do something about it and actually do something positive that moves us forward and doesn't create a new problem. You can look at what the disciples said and you can realize that they thought of one possible solution that they threw out the window because it would have fixed one problem and created another. That possible solution was that the apostles could say, ah, oh, you are right. I mean, there, we, are, we are not doing what we need to do. And this whole bread distribution thing, we need to do better. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take all on our work list of all the, you know, the elders we talk about, our job responsibility. I wonder if the apostles had this job responsibility list. And let's just add another one at the bottom. This is going to be make sure you do the bread distribution. And, you know, that would have, quote, solved the problem. I mean, if they were personally handling it, it would have been all right. But they realized that doing that may have solved that problem, but it would have created another one. They would have overburdened themselves to they, they weren't able to get in the word and preach it and teach it. They wouldn't have the time to be on their knees in prayer for the church, for God's power to come upon it. And they said, we can't do that. In other words, they don't go out and state it this way. But by the way, folks, we thought about doing this ourselves. It was our first, it was our first snap reaction, you know, just to do it ourselves and take care of it. And that would hush it up and it would solve the problem and we could go. But down the road, that would hurt us. Because God has called us. There's nothing wrong with bread distribution. It's an honorable thing and, and, and it needs to happen. But God has called us to the word and to prayer. And so they, they're smart enough to know that just putting out that fire by doing it themselves won't work. The apostles would have made great food distribution managers. I mean, they'd done it before. Remember the loaves and the fishes? I mean, they knew about handing out bread and handing out food. But that wasn't what God called them to do. Problems can actually be seen as opportunities in a lot of ways. And one of them is for new believers to step up, folks to step up into new roles and to take on leadership they never have before. Almost every church in existence had to do that at some point. I don't know if you realize this, but there are people out there that think that committees are evil. Now, I'm not just talking about the people who sit through the committee meetings and at the end of two hours, we all think they're evil, right? But I'm talking about there's churches, there's a few out there that say, well, the word committee isn't in the Bible, and so therefore, we should never have a committee. By the, word, by the way, the word, word Sunday school isn't in the Bible. And, and lots of things that we do, although the concepts, like for Sunday school, the idea of small groups of people meeting together to study God's word, that is in there. And for committee, the idea of the body of Christ, not just one or two or a few people working together, but the whole body of Christ, everybody finding their area of ministry. Maybe it's men's ministry or women's ministry or, or, or being in the choir, or being on a committee or doing Sunday school. But there's all sorts of things out there. And every church starts off with a small group of people pretty much doing it all. 
And they can hold on to that out of a power play or out of guilt and saying, I ought to do it all. It's my job to do it all. And their church will never grow. But as the church grows, leadership must multiply. Service must multiply. People have to get involved. And the apostles knew if we don't get some other folks involved here, we're going to be the bottleneck. We're going to stop this mighty work of God because we think we have to hold on to all of it. So they saw this uh, problem, but they focused on a solution. The Bible says they presented this plan and this solution to the people, and it sounded good. And the solution was they go and they say, now you pick seven men from among you. Uh, and, and, you know, good men, Holy Spirit-filled men, great Christians. We, we want you to pick those seven guys, and, and you pick them, and, and you know, That'll be the solution. And the Bible says the church people like this idea. They said, yeah, it, we can do this. And they, by the way, this is the first, really the first election of church leaders in the Bible, um, at least in the New Testament, in the church, excuse me. This is the first time that the church is called upon and says, select among you. And so they do. And the apostles then uh, agree, yeah, these are good guys, and they pray for them, they lay hands on them, they ordain them, and the problem is solved. And it's so interesting when you look at this, in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, the church was growing, and then this thing came up. And then there's this whole process, the solution, God's people agree, and then at the end, okay, and the church grew even more greatly. It multiplied. And in other words, Luke is saying the church was growing and it ended up growing even more. But if this hadn't been dealt with in the middle, all that growth could have stopped. But because people thought, sought wisdom and prayer and found a good solution, the work of God was able to grow and to continue and to go on. What about that solution that they bought, that they gave to the people, and the people bought into, and they liked, and they said, yeah. Uh, the third point here in dealing with these things is allowing for flexibility and choice. Allowing for flexibility and choice. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to Jason Hall recently, and uh, we, were, we were sitting at the table the other night, and uh, just talking about kids and everything, and... and, and Something he said reminded me of when Caleb was little. Um, I, I'm going to blame this all on the youth that I had, okay? I was a youth minister uh, when he was born, and I remember there was a particular uh, youth that thought it was real funny when Caleb was just learning to talk to, to teach him to say, no, no. Every time he saw Caleb, he'd say, no, 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 no. And Caleb thought that was fun to say, no, no, no. And so I'm going to blame that early trouble, those terrible twos. I'm going to blame it on that kid who did that. But, you know, we were at this place. I remember me and his mom, he was, he was like two or something. And, I mean, everything was just constant, like this battle. It was difficult. And so I remember we were like, what do we do? We need some help. And somebody told us, they said, look, for kids with strong will, Give them a choice. Okay, they're still going to go through that process of getting ready for bed. But what you say is, well, Caleb, would you like to brush your teeth first? You know, if you just said, Caleb, time to brush your teeth. No. But if you said, Caleb, 
would you like to brush your teeth first or put on your pajamas first? Now, look, did I care what he chose? Absolutely not. But he had little choice in the matter. He, hmm, I'll brush my teeth first. You know, and that did wonders. It was amazing. Well, a little choice, because he had a little say in the matter, that, that he could, you know, he could do that. Well, guess what? It's not just toddlers that like choice. None of us like having things shoved down our throats. All of us like to, to have a little say. We like to be involved, and we, we, we like to be a part of things. And so very, very wise, uh, the church leaders who think about this and understand this principle is, yeah, you got to make decisions, you got to make choices, you can't vote about everything and talk about everything. But when there's big, huge, momentous deals, you can't just announce, okay, you know, uh, by the way, we've just uh, bought $3 million worth of property. Hope you guys are happy about it. You know, y you have to say, hey, okay, we think the Spirit said this to us, but let's all be together in this. And they brought their plan to the people, and, and, and honestly, the people weren't going to say, no, you apostles, you're way off. They, they weren't going to do that, but they included them in the process, and they, they let them uh, vote. And you know what? They really... Uh, they voted wisely. Here's the interesting thing. When you look at the names of the seven men that were voted in, every single one of those names was a Greek name instead of a Jewish name. Now, Jews could take on Greek names. Even two of the apostles, um, Andrew was one of them. That's a Greek name. So Jews could have Greek names. But the fact that all seven of these men had Greek names means that the early church said, you know what? We want these folks, the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, we want them to feel comfortable that their folks are going to be well taken care of. What's the best way we can do this? We're going to put into place Greek-speaking men who are full of the Holy Spirit, who love God and serve God, and they're going to have the role in making sure that their own widows are taken care of. And so the whole, the whole church was happy about this. The, uh, the Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking part of them were like, great. We don't want this to happen. We don't want them to think that this isn't going on. This side of the church was like, great, we know these people. We know they'll make sure that our widows are taken care of. I love the sensitivity there, though, in the early church. Because they said, hey, even if we weren't aware of this problem, even if it didn't affect us, we want to make sure that this other part of the body of Christ, that they feel good about this and, and they know that their widows will be taken care of. It is absolutely imperative for us as believers to pursue peace in the church. But we have to remember what peace is. Peace isn't ignoring problems. Peace isn't giving in to whiners and complainers and, and giving them whatever they want. But pursuing peace means that we see in the natural course of things, and if it happened in Acts, it will happen in every church today. If it happened to the early believers when the apostles were still present, we can bet and we can believe that whether you're a member here today or you're a visitor, 
It happens in churches. Uh, struggles and issues come up. We have to deal with them seriously. Listen, find out what the problem is. Focus on the solution. And that solution should be one that unites the body of Christ. We deal with problems in a way that respects people, that honors God, and that builds his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as a perfect God, you love us because we're so imperfect. We know that it's not your fault that we are. We know you created hum human beings in your image. And yet, while that image is still there, we know that it's kind of been marred. It's kind of been messed up because we chose to sin. Your word tells us all we like sheep have gone astray. But Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy that allows us to get along, to work together for your kingdom, even if we come from different places in age or economics or ethnicity or culture. Lord, we understand that's not what really matters, but it's the blood of Christ that binds us together. Father, when we face issues, Lord, may we really listen to people, to the concerns of their heart, to take them seriously. Father, may we not just listen and say, oh, that's a shame, but may we actually act to unite the body of Christ, to come up with solutions so that we can move forward and people and your church can grow and your name be honored and glorified. God, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.